I'm Tyler. I'm Megan. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hi, Megan. Hey, Tyler. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to getting into paper and office parties and Ben Franklin. Yeah, we have a lot on the table. This I feel like this episode hits a number of your uh, interests or <laughs> themes. Uh, I mean, this is like a big gender episode, it feels like. That's true. That's true. I kept thinking of what's the one where Jan gives the women a like a seminar? Oh, yeah, women in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, I kept thinking about that episode a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, I you said this review. Like I wish I, to, I wish I had thought to go back and review some of those earlier episodes because I thought about the sexual harassment episode a little oh, bit. Oh, yes. We can go, you know, we can do an annex episode where we go review those things and we connect them. Yeah, I forgot we have the annex. The annex is always available to us. It is. We never use it almost, but we will. Uh, well, just in case my voice sounds weird to listeners, I am uh, recovering from COVID, which apparently still exists, still a thing, uh, which is a bummer. Uh, but I got it, uh, you know, for really good reasons, which was going to a very traveling uh, to a very, very happy celebration. And longtime listeners of the podcast will know about uh, our like steadfast fans and listeners, Corey and Andy. Um, and uh, they've written into the podcast. Uh, and in fact, I've recently discovered that they are the the voice of Leonardo DiCaprio, which was a real bummer to discover why did you even tell me this tyler i'm sorry i just had no idea i just figured every night you were staring out to the horizon lighting a candle in your window and thinking and i just didn't want you to live that life you know i'm gonna live the Um, rest of my life happily knowing there was a chance Corey told me that like like an hour before the wedding ceremony and i honestly was like should we call this thing off like can i object or something like, how can I disrupt this thing? Uh, because my disappointment is so intense, it must be shared. Um, but wow. we are very, uh, I, I, I was telling you beforehand, and you were getting excited to to know that they, yes. So I thought we'd share that uh, uh, with the listeners. So congratulations um, to Andy and Corey. It seems like a powerful union based on how well they can write a Leonardo DiCaprio email <laughs> together. So. <laughs> that's what love is built on. Yes. <laughs> that's part of it for sure. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know. What about you? Anything going on in the world of the office you want to talk about before we head over to the supply shelf? Well, I do have a revision and regret. Oh, then we got to go accounting. But Tyler, this is a little bit of a different one because I am going to revise something on your behalf. credit. <gasps> At the end of our last episode, you referred to Chili's chicken crispers as chicken fingers. (laughs) They're not fingers, they're crispers. It's different. It's a classic aspect of Chili's. And I just wanted to make sure that we clarified that. I don't think I've ever felt such intense shame. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) 
Between uh, you, you've been receiving some rough news lately. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? This podcast is over. It's too emotionally intense. Um, that's good to know. And I, I apologize profusely. I, I will uh, make amends. I'll seek redress, uh, whatever I can do to make up for this. I will say we were in the airport. We were in the Chicago airport Ooh. and almost went to the Chili's on the go or whatever it's called there. Maybe um, it's called Chili's 2. Chili's 2. Oh, oh, you know. oh. <laughs> uh, but we didn't. Um, and I regret it. So I, re I revise and regret that decision. <laughs> um, okay, so lots of Chili's based regrets. Yeah. No, I was going to, I was going to, uh, yet again, I often like think I'm going to revise and regret something. And then afterwards, I'm like, no, I'm confident about that, which is yeah. a nice window into how my life is, you know, that I just walk through with this sort of, you know, devastating sense of wrongness. And then only later, many years later, and I'm like, wait a minute, no, I believe what I said. Uh, and so I had this anxiety that I would regret going down the potential dark hole of Michael Scott being in some way or another uh, uh, violated by his mother, or at least at the very least having some kind of inappropriate, or she, she behaved inappropriately or whatever as a mother. He has mommy issues. I don't know. And the more I thought about it, I was like, nope, I am all in on this. And I have to tell you the beginning of this episode only confirmed it for mm. me. So I am yes. afraid in the way that you have long been offering a queer reading of Michael Scott. Now I'm offering a like reading of Michael Scott as trauma. Um, and uh, so, yeah. It's okay. I'm really excited for this. And here's a question. Do you think if you recorded the rest of your life, you would have less regret because you could go back and be like, that wasn't so bad. Actually. Yes. <laughs> but I much like, like I, I am loathe to re-listen to these episodes and I am loathe to like reread my journals, for oh, example. Yeah. And, but whenever I do, I'm like, oh, that, that wasn't so bad. What, what were you yeah. doing? So yeah. I would have to force myself to replay it. Yeah. I think if you force yourself, you'll find that, yeah, that'll, that'll be your finding. Oh, that's not so bad. I'm not the worst. No. <laughs> Could be worse. Uh, well, any other revisions or regrets or should we head over to the supply? That's it. Let's let's go supply shelf. Okay, let's walk on. Over. I do feel like we need some transition music. So if we got any listeners that want to create <laughs> music drops. Uh, anyway, okay. What you got for the supply shelf? I would like to share something about the history of paper. Ah. So this was a proposal from Corey that we get a little bit into the context. And so today, I think there's definitely more that we could do, but... Um, I just thought I would bring a little tidbit, a little glance into the world of paper and its history. We're not going to get really far into the production of it, but this will this will give us a start. I would like to start by recommending the American Forest and Paper Association's website. They've got a little history of paper. I think that this is going to be a source I'll return to because they also have a section on statistics and resources, as well as paper and wood products. So very, very promising resource here. But let me begin. I'm not going to go to the 
origin of paper. I'm not going thousands of years back for this. What I want to start with really is the American history of paper, since this is our American Story podcast. So I am going to just read a little bit um, from the American Forest and Paper Association's history of paper. So they explain that England began making large supplies of paper in the late 15th century and supplied the colonies with paper for many years. It was finally in 1690 that the first U.S. paper mill was built in Pennsylvania. Oh! So this made me start to really wonder about what were all the things that went into the choice of Pennsylvania, but this is an important place in the history of paper. So I'm going to continue, continue to quote here. At the first American paper mills, or I'm sorry, let me start that again. At first, American paper mills used the Chinese method of shredding old rags and clothes into individual fibers to make paper. But as demand for paper grew, the mills changed to using fiber from trees because wood was less expensive and more abundant than cloth. Today, paper is made from trees grown in sustainably managed forests and from recycled paper, and recycling has always been a part of paper making. So that's my first item. Any reactions so far? I'm just still blown away by the Pennsylvania of it all, but um, no, I'm loving this. Yeah, the Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania aspect is, is pretty great. Uh, I will also note that Georgia Tech seems to be the leading university in addressing papermaking and its history. They actually have a museum, the Robert C. Williams Museum of Papermaking, and they have some resources there, including stuff about the history of papermaking. So I would recommend that. And then I'm going to get a little bit more into some of the Pennsylvania aspect mm. of this. Okay. So I'm reading again here. This is about coming over to the United States, and this is the Pennsylvania context for you. William Rittenhouse and his family, papermakers from Germany via the Netherlands, were influenced by William Penn and the promise of religious freedom to immigrate to North America. In 1690, they established the first paper mill in the British colonies in Germantown, Pennsylvania, an area north of Philadelphia. The first paper mill was built of logs over Wissahickon Creek. Not sure if I'm saying that right. Wissahickon well, Creek. Sure. Really? Okay, good. Thank you. I want to hear your knowledge of that creek in a moment. Uh, so that's where it was built over logs. The location chosen because the water was clean and free of heavy mineral deposits. Rittenhouse and his family made paper in the European method of papermaking. The three men working at the Rittenhouse mill made about four reams of newspaper in a day. Their annual production would have been 1,200 to 1,500 reams of paper. And as a reminder, a ream, it's like one of those packs of printer paper. So it's that thick. Is it 500 pages? I'm forgetting the number of pages, but it's like, it's not a ton of paper. So we've really advanced, but that gives us as a starting place, some of the early history of American paper production. I'm excited to dive into, this is a great, uh, I'm loving this addition to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing that Corey suggested that we explore in the supply shelf is our own personal um, preferences, right? Or, 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 or attitudes towards paper. Um, 
Uh, and so <clears throat> earlier I mentioned journaling and I've been going back over my journals, which like I've been keeping a journal since I was like nine or so. Um, That's so impressive. I wish well, I did that because I don't remember anything in my life. It just disappears from my brain, but I do not have the discipline. It's pretty crazy to go back over stuff and be like, whoa, wait, what? I forgot that happened. You know, yeah. things happen that I totally forgot anyway. Um, but I have not always been consistent it's on and off and and now it's more like a writing journal than it is like my daily what happened today anyway whatever um but and, oh and i will say uh, like at a certain point around 2012 2013 or whatever when i was like oh maybe 2011 2012 when i was writing a dissertation i kind of transitioned to writing a journal exclusively in microsoft word and i really regret it because it never ends, right? And then it's like, really, it's if you wanted to search for something that's nice, you can kind of keyword search. But other than that, it's really frustrating to not see the, to be able to like flip back and forth. And yeah, yeah. feel for even just the tone or the tenor of the texture of how you wrote something. Yeah. Um, were you writing really large? Was it really whatever? Yeah. But so anyway, I've been going back over all my journals and and I know it's a cliche, at this point and like a stereotype but those moleskin journals that are like overpriced are so great and I was gonna say the reason I love them I especially love the ones where it like it flips up so it's not that it opens oh yeah like it doesn't have a spine down the middle instead like it's legal a legal pad style right it's more like that and because I'm left-handed I've always smeared on paper when I'm writing left to right um I always forget that about you, left-handed. How could you forget that most essential fact of my identity? That's a part of your identity. I know. You, you erased me. A left-hander. Um, so anyway, uh, oh, so I love the ones that flip out that way. And then using the pens that we've already established how much we love, mm -hmm. um, the way the paper drinks the ink, <laughs> uh, there's nothing more satisfying than... Um, than that and so uh yeah anyway for anybody looking for a journal i'm it's a basic uh obvious recommendation but those are my thoughts tyler when the paper absorbs the ink do you find that it's got good what's the opposite of transparency opacity i guess would that be the word? whatever is yeah. it good that, like it doesn't show through it doesn't bleed through at all on the other side yeah, that's the one problem with those pens and that paper. It's like, I don't, it doesn't bleed through, but it also, it's not like if you flip it over, it's a, a completely new sheet. You know, it feels like you're writing on a used sheet, which mm -hmm. I do not enjoy. And so I often don't write on this, on the back of a piece of paper okay. for that reason. Um, what about you? Do you use those journals too? It looked like you had something in your hands. Well, I don't use a journal. I wish that I would, um, but what I do, so the book that I have, I was looking to see what kind of book it is. So when I am taking notes about things that I need to write, or I'm reading things and pulling quotes for it, I've started doing it all in this one kind of book. And it is called The Cache by Daler Brownie. And it's black on the outside. It's like a hardcover book. And it just has blank white pages on the inside. 
And this is my recommendation for people. I think this is the same thing you're doing with always having the moleskin is get one kind of notebook and commit to it and just have all of it because then it's really nice on your shelf because you just have all of the same thing before. I think I spent a lot of time in my life bouncing around between different notebook styles and I regret that. I don't think it was coherent. So this, I'm really, really happy with this approach. Um, it is, what I say? It's non-lined paper. I will say in this, I use a basic BIC exclusively. I like to write aggressively enough at times that I can feel kind of the bump of uh, the paper. I find that to be a very nice, nice quality. And Oh, yes. Here was my other point of recommendation. Don't get spirals. Spiral notebooks, you slide those things into your backpack or your bag, and it's rubbing and creating indents in your other books. It is a big blockade that's in the way, in the middle. I really, really have to say we need to move away from the spiral. So if you want a more regular notebook, the classic composition notebook is the way to go. Yeah, I agree with that. Oh, I used to love those composition notebooks. But wait, how tell me about your note taking practice. Do you save your notes? Like, and also how does this apply like for class? Like during class, I'll be taking notes on what people say so I can remember or I want to, you know, go back to something or whatever. And I always think like, oh, I'm gonna look back at that later. And then I kind of don't. Like I have a lot of notes from like lectures. I'll listen to a lecture, take notes. And then I never do anything with it. And some of those I like have, and other times I kind of throw them out, um, yeah. which I've felt like I should have a system. I should archive things. I should go back to them. And then I'm, I don't know if it's laziness or if it's like just the act of taking the notes is enough to make my brain think. Um, yeah. But I it also so. feels kind of pointless in some ways. I don't know. What do you do? I think that's kind of the thing with, with notes in class or in something like that I'll use these notebooks if it's I don't know a a conference or a lecture where I feel like I really want the notes but mostly I use it when there's something that I'm writing and there's stuff that I know I have to keep using and going back to if it's notes for for class or where you're in a meeting or something like that I'll do that often separately on loose leaf paper or something that I don't then necessarily keep but I think you're really right that it's the act of the note taking and it allows you to go back within the discussion and see connections among different people's ideas and stuff like that but when I'm in that kind of context it's too messy I have to write too fast and it's too messy and I don't want those kinds of notes in my permanent notebook because I want it to be neat uh, hmm. Well, uh, I can't imagine that this is entertaining to anybody uh, (laughs) but us and possibly Corey, who can say, but write in if you have uh, questions for us about paper (laughs) and its history or our idiosyncratic preferences, um, you can write to us at the best office hours podcast at gmail.com. So once more, that's the as in T-H-E best office hours podcast at gmail.com. All right. Shall we get into the episode? Let's do it. Okay. Do you have a summary for us? 
Uh, I do not. Hold on one second. Uh, yeah, I got here. I can read it okay. tonight. So here we go. Eccentric adult performers entertain the office in honor of Phyllis's upcoming wedding. Karen confronts Pam about Jim. What an interesting description. I mean, it's correct. Mm -hmm. It's also I've, amusing. The form of these summaries is to do two independent clauses with yeah. the semicolon in between. And like sometimes they tease you like like because th they're trying to hold the surprise that Ben Franklin is one of the eccentric <laughs> adult entertainers. Uh -huh. But other times they kind of spoil or misdirect, I think, like yeah. what the episode's about. So I, I would say this is a good one, though. Yeah, I think we could do an annex episode that's just an analysis of the form of the summary. This podcast will never end. I love it. <laughs> Um, it never end and it'll keep coming up with things to talk about that no one thought you should talk about so we have an interesting opening here because it is it is not the documentary it is not the documentary of michael scott or whatever or of <laughs> Mifflin. it is michael scott's own um film which he is uh addressing his future child wait tyler uh, i love it that you called it a film yeah <laughs> I think he would appreciate that. Uh, quick question. Have you ever seen the Michael Keaton film, My Life? No. Um, so the movie My Life is this premise. Um, let me see. It came out uh, in 1993. Uh, and it has Michael Keaton and Nicole Kidman. Um, and basically the premise is that this guy is uh, has cancer and he's not going to live to see their baby. And so he makes home movies to be shown to his son after death, showing him like how to cook and how to drive and how to do stuff. Um, um, so I don't know how explicitly this is a reference to that or whether it's a reference just to the idea kind of, uh, you know, but it is, it's an amusing concept that Michael doesn't yet have a child nor the prospect of one, but he's making videos <laughs> for this child under the presumption that he will not be around when yeah. the child reaches the age, which I suppose is what, like 14, 13, 15? I don't know when the child will be watching. Anyway, so um, that was my initial thought. But yeah, what did you think of this bit? <laughs> it's really interesting. Michael is preparing... <laughs> So not only for his death, but for a child that he does not have, for the assumption that it will be a boy. Yeah. Why doesn't he do this once he has a child? It's interesting that example, the, wait, what was the movie called again? My Life. My Life. It's interesting that example that he is, like, once you get a terrible diagnosis where you're, go, like, you're thinking differently about death and the likelihood of death. It's interesting that Michael, without anything like that, is still anticipating his death and thinking about it at that level of seriousness where he documents all the things he knows as a man. I mean, that is true and also not true. He did have a confrontation with death. He was scraping gunk off his wall sockets with a metal oh, fork. Right. 
and gave himself the nastiest shock. Oh, you're so right. When he came to, he had an epiphany. Life is precious. Oh, that's so, you're so right. So this is a failure of my close reading, I guess. (laughs) I was not taking seriously his sense of his own encounter with death. One thing though. Nor should you. (laughs) He does not say, when I came to, I had an epiphany. He says, I had an epiphory. You're right, you're right. (laughs) Which I just, of course, noticed because one of my favorite Michael Scott things is reaching for a good word and just getting it a little bit wrong. So good. I want want my son to know the dealio, the dealio of life. Sorry, I just love that line. Go ahead, sorry. Just the, I, I can relate to the scraping gunk off your wall sockets with a metal fork. I mean, I don't do that to be clear, but that idea where, when your face is so baffled by I'm this. so, what? How could you relate to that part? Well, is there ever a case where you notice something in your house and it's like, there's this buildup of old filth that's maybe like underneath something or in a corner of the floor or on an old light switch or plug, what is that thing called? wall sockets Um, and you just really want to get it all the way off and perfectly clean and sometimes you need to bring in a knife sometimes you need to bring in some creative objects because just standard cleaning doesn't do it so I felt like I I could relate I could really feel for Michael in terms of how he got himself into this situation um I have shocked myself with electricity before not on purpose but you know like changing um a light fixture or something and it is unsettling but it's not horrible you didn't uh wake up later (laughs) i didn't wake up there i mean is this real did it actually knock him out or when he came to was it just that he already basically was too but had this realization i don't know that's a good question. Um, but I do want to ask a, a quick clarifying question when you're talking about cleaning. On a s- scale of like, how much of a clean freak are you? I, I shouldn't, that's pejorative. How clean How clean would you describe yourself to be? Uh, and, and, and or organized? Because I don't know that those are the same thing, like things being straightened versus things being cleaned. But yeah, how clean are we talking? This is a good question. I think I think I might be a little complicated about this. I don't think I keep things as clean as I would like to. I mean, things, if you were to see the sides of my desk, there's like piles of books and papers and things here on the sides are in need of some care, if you will. But what I will do is notice some little detail of uncleanliness and really go to town on it. Mm. Like Michael, like I'll notice that kind of thing and then it'll really bother me. And so I've got to take care of it. Can you go to bed with dishes in the sink? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Just checking. I don't know. Totally. Uh, yeah. When I notice when I notice, though, that the corner of the dishwasher has some gunk, yeah. you better believe I'm getting out a knife or whatever tool I need. I have to say the word gunk is like, <laughs> For the ways in which some people experience the word moist. Yeah. Um, I hate the word congealed also for some reason. 
but I hate the word gunk. And like the number of times I've heard it in this episode and thought about, oh, because it's like not, it's not a thing. Like it's not a definable entity, you know, it's, it's like sludge, like sludge is so gross to me because it's like, what is that? Like Mm -hmm. it's all, it's a, it's a, it's a conglomeration of the, anyway. Yeah. um, It's mysterious. Like build up over time. It just begins to kind of layer onto itself. Yeah. So, you know, it was gross. He, he definitely had to take care of that. What do you think about the the things that he puts into this video? So he says, here are some things that I want to teach you that your mother won't be able to. To jumpstart a car, first, pop the hood. Then you take these bad boys and clip them anywhere on the engine. Then you take these and clip them wherever. And Dwight is then shaking his head that he is not doing this right. And then the other one is how to take off a woman's bra. He first asks Pam if he can try it on her. She refuses, and so he does it on Dwight. And these are the only two items that we see. Jump a car and take off a bra. I mean, essential skills I guess. uh well I am instantly thought of you when I <laughs> saw these because I was like I feel like you're often interested in the ways in which the show is sort of what does it point to as the essence of masculinity or yeah yeah. yeah I thought this was a really like great Megan example uh or, or the the Megan theory mm-hmm. in that it's like um being sexually dexterous is that that's (laughs) That's a perfect word for that yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and uh uh, yeah mechanically uh, endowed (laughs) (laughs) but of course you know the irony being that michael doesn't know how to do either of these things um and does them incorrectly uh (laughs) I really enjoyed, but yeah, I mean, it does play into like two stereo, two basic stereotypes of like what it means to be a man, which is like yeah. to be uh, um, sexually knowledgeable. And I, I don't want to say aggressive, but like the one who does the things, the initiator, yeah, the, yeah. The, mm-hmm. the, the aggressor, I guess. The remover um, of clothing and not the removee. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. The subject, not the object. And uh, and then, um, yeah, knowledge of a car, I guess, is meant to be what? A, a kind of engineering knowledge, a knowledge of like, I don't know, how to get out of a an emergency. You're a problem solver. You're fixing. Yeah. Like men are supposed to fix the mm-hmm. problems and uh, or something like that. So. But of course, uh, one other connect, you know, I'm always trying to connect the openings to the endings. You are. And so it's really interesting that the like for the second line basically is Dwight being like, how do you know it's going to be a boy? And <laughs> basically, like, you know, your mother won't be able to help you do these things. Mm-hmm. But then by the end of the episode, he realizes that the woman uh, who does she have a name? What's her name? Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth, she has more insight than Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> and uh, so I thought that was interesting because he he kind of does realize by the end, actually, wait a minute, women know how to do things. On the other hand, what she knows how to do is emotional. Hmm. So perhaps that plays into like, because it's about communication, right? I don't yeah, know. yeah. But still, uh, 
I don't know. It's also just an interesting idea that this is what parenting is, that parenting is about transferring skills rather Mm. than anything else. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. The, I do love your point, of course, about the, the essence of masculinity. And like you said, I think that this is so good that Michael fails at both of them. So it's such an odd choice too, when he wants to train this imagined future boy in the skills of masculinity is he not good at anything that men are stereotypically supposed to do because wouldn't you want to choose some things that you can do he's clearly never jumped a car the white signals to us that he's wrong but even as he's saying it he's like clip them wherever so he doesn't know he does so badly with the bra thing like it's just interesting as a as a choice um, that he he does these things that are the essence of being a man, but that he cannot do. And then I do think, to your point about the connections, we also continue to see his masculinity undercut and questioned within the episode. Yeah, we got to talk about that. Um, okay, well, so here comes... Well, okay, before we get to the deeper part, let's, the more superficial, um, I just really laughed at the line um, about how to take a bra off. You just twist your hand until something breaks. (laughs) And I have to admit that, like, younger Tyler (laughs) attempting to take a bra off, that was essentially my uh, strategy. It was like, I don't know, twist this and just sort of hope that, (laughs) <laughs> something <laughs> something happens and and uh hope for the best you know and so uh you could have used this video i could have used this knowledge um yeah. although it wouldn't have helped really and it wasn't until some woman was like here's how you do it and i was like oh <laughs> thank you okay <laughs> um so yeah i don't know that made me chuckle i don't know if that was a made you laugh or whatever it's very funny. Yes. I love it. Also, just one other point about this video. The filter, you can just see the lighting of the camera. It's terrible. Like, he looks terrible. They look terrible in this video. You can just see the difference, you know, between yeah. the camera of the documentary crew and then when it goes to his little camcorder, and it's bad. Okay, but here's my psychoanalytic <clears throat> theory, which is to say that Michael is not talking to his son, but he's talking to younger Michael. Oh, okay. Bring it on, Tyler. He's parenting himself in the way mm-hmm. that he wasn't parented. So by imagining a child, he is like reparenting himself, is my current theory. And while we don't know enough about Jeff, and what Jeff did or did not teach Michael, like it's an interesting note that he says, like your mother won't be able to show you any of this. And if he was mainly parented by his mother and either she didn't know or she didn't wish to know, like didn't wish, not wish to know, didn't wish to like teach him these particular skills or whatever. (laughs) And this is his fantasy of what, of the messages he should have received. Like he is trying to make himself the father that he did not have. Um, 
but does not know how uh, is my current theory. Yeah. And then maybe that's why he does not know how, because he thinks that that's information that has to come down from the father. And so he didn't have that. And so he doesn't know how to do it, but he still tries to make the video to teach it. Right. But yeah, I think you're so right. Like he's, he's filling a desire for himself that was not met. Then he says, no matter what, I will always love you. What if he's a murderer? He's not going to be a murderer. Maybe that's how you die. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so let me ask you this. If you had a child and that mm -hmm. child is a murderer, would you still love that child? Probably. I mean, people do, right? I don't know. I'm always like, there's always so much focus on like, these murderers, the serial killers, the mass shooters or whatever, you know, you get, we get a little coverage when it happens. Maybe we get something later that lionizes them or does like a true crime thing. I always want that story. Like I want the story of the family and are mm -hmm. they like, do they disavow this? Do they say, look, I love you anyway. Like how do they process? And yeah, it's got to be it's got to be an extremely challenging thing to face. And there's all the differences between I don't need to get into this, but I guess the circumstance like what are the circumstances in which they killed someone? Yeah, uh, because true. it feels like there's a lot of range there in terms of even the level of sympathy that you could feel. Um, but it's uh, it's complicated. Dwight Dwight is raising a very tough question. I was definitely trying to trap you there and get you canceled. I wanted you to. Oh, thanks. I feel like that's a, a running running theme in your questions for me. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> my goal of the podcast. Setting me up for cancellation. So I have one related thing that I wanted to bring up that comes in the scene that's just after this. And we've got to talk about the, the prima nocta thing. <laughs> this is when Michael explains. So Phyllis is getting married soon. And this is when Michael explains why he is rallying the troops, if you will. So he says, I'm trying to get everyone excited about Phyllis's wedding because I want her to get people excited about my wedding when the time comes, which won't be hard because it's going to be awesome. A lot better than hers, that's for sure. It'll probably be on a boat. So I thought about this quote when you were talking about him trying to parent himself. And this this is different. It's not about parenting, but the way that he's treating someone. So in this case, the way that he's treating Phyllis, that it's really about how he hopes to be treated. And it's really in anticipation of that, similar to the way that how he talks to his son is really about the way that he wants to be talked to right. in the past. So there's this interesting thing of like living through other people are imagining the way that he wants to be treated through other people's experiences and how he then treats them. So do you have a theory of why he'd want to be on a boat then? <laughs> well, he loved in the booze cruise. He seems like he really thrives on a boat. He's made for the sea. It's romantic, I guess. Uh, you're cringing do you like the ocean no oh i like the ocean i'm just trying to i'm just trying to figure out what it what are all the factors here for michael and i just don't mm. i just don't know but a boat does seem cool 
Yeah, it could work. There's something interesting too about the idea of the exchange of of enthusiasm. Yeah. Where like you're happy for someone else and you are enthusiastic for someone else in the hopes that they will then do the same for you or kind of in exchange. Your enthusiasm is in exchange for theirs, which makes it seem like a really crude transaction, but it's one of those things where I thought, but that is probably true in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Where where friendship or having a good coworker relationship does involve an exchange of enthusiasm. And if it's really one-sided and uneven, then it tends not to work out. So I think he's on to something. I yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, I do think it it comes off as kind of narcissistic in that transactional sense, or at least just like insincere. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, I don't think you're wrong. Like, and I feel like the difficult friendships or relationships I've had are or friendships in particular, like where it's not reciprocal. that level of enthusiasm about x you know or like part of the job of like kind of being a friend or a coworker in some contexts is just like being excited Mm -hmm. you know or expressing unmitigated enthusiasm or whatever yeah yeah um so yeah no i think you're i think you're right um it is funny that he thinks his is going to be a lot better than hers (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is also like such a, a um it's both understandable why he would say that and so childish in a way too, that it's like, because like, I don't know about you, but like when I go to people's weddings or whatever, I'm not think I'm not like comparing them in the Mm -hmm. sense of like, this one's better than that one or whatever, because it's like incomparable. It's like, what did you want? Do you know Like, I don't know, unless, yeah, but Michael Scott. Phyllis didn't want it. Right, right, right. So yeah. Although I will say, although he seems insincere in this statement and it comes it definitely comes across that way, I think that this is true that he wants her enthusiasm in the future, but I also think that he's genuinely enthusiastic. Interesting. Okay. So I don't think I don't think that this is all just a performance or that it's all just exaggeration. I, I think he's enthusiastic about it. And is that why you think he's gonna institute prima nocta? The cut is so I think the editing here is very funny. It's so good. Do you want to read the the quote into the record and then tell us about the cut? Yeah. uh, Okay. Hello, everyone. As you know, we are six days away from Phyllis's wedding. So get your suits to the dry cleaner and get your hair did. And Karen, um, you might want to invest in a dress or a skirt of some kind if you don't already have one. This may be Phyllis's only wedding ever. It is my job to ensure that none of you look like ragamuffins. So I'm instituting prima nocta. And then Jim says prima nocta, I believe from the movie Braveheart and confirmed on Wikipedia is when the king got to deflower every new bride on her wedding night. So cut back to Michael saying, I'm sorry. I had a very different understanding as to what prima nocta meant. Um. I just think the editing there is really funny because like we do not see the reaction of everybody explaining it to him. We see the cutaway to Jim. Yeah. And then we see the cutaway back to Michael apologizing, which seems genuinely sincere. Like he's genuinely (laughs) 
contrite or whatever for what he said. So yeah, I don't know. I just found that I think the editing there is very sharp and makes the joke come off perfectly. Um, oh. I would say I did look up um Prima Nocta. Oh, nice. Um which uh I'm not gonna try to read in like Middle English, uh, but also known <laughs> as right of the first night was a supposed legal right in medieval Europe, allowing feudal lords to have sexual relations with subordinate women, in particular on the wedding nights of the women. A majority of historians have concluded that the idea is a myth and that mm. all references to it are from later periods. Over the centuries, it became commonly portrayed in European literature as a practice that had occurred in earlier times or other places. In practice, it may have been the feudal lords using their power and influence over serfs to sexually exploit the women free of consequences, as opposed to a legitimate legal right. Um, and there's like a reference to it in Gilgamesh. And so anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting, like that it's this myth that didn't necessarily exist. Like to be sure kings were exploiting, you know, women and their power or whatever. But the idea of like a specific legal right yeah, this, like wedding night thing is such a interesting idea. The other bit of research I did related to this was on ragamuffin. Um, oh, I love that word. I just wanted to note that I think that that was a hilarious word choice. Am I going to be the fact that I like that word? Uh, so this is just from Miriam Webster, but the word ragamuffin can refer to a ragged person, a type of music, also known as ragamuffin or raga, which hmm. is like the root for reggae and a demon in the 14th century poem Piers Plowsman, but this versatile word has another meaning, beginning in the 19th century, it described participants in the American tradition of Thanksgiving masking or ragamuffin parades. Oh, um, wow. So like kids would dress in costume and beg for handouts for their Thanksgiving meals, and then that transforms into, um, like it gets folded into uh, Halloween. Um, hmm. So... The Middle English word functioned as both a blotty, blotty, blah. Oh, I thought this part was interesting. So the muffin part of the word may have its origin in either two Anglo-Norman words for a devil or a scoundrel, but it's mm -hmm. uncertain. Um, so anyway, I thought that was uh, kind of fun and interesting. And then there's a whole history of ragamuffin parades I won't get into. But Oh, wow. Um, okay, well, we can research that on our own own time. But, including, but no. It's ragamuffin. It's also such a parental word. Yes. Of saying like the kind of thing that a parent says to the kids. The parent is responsible that the kids not look like ragamuffins. Yes. So he's really positioning himself then as a father, not only to his imaginary son, but in some ways to everybody in the office. Yeah. Because he has to get them to lay their clothes out nicely and be prepared to not embarrass him. Yeah, he says, it is my job to ensure that none of you yeah. get pregnant. So, yeah, this kind of performative establishing of himself in this role. Yeah. It's just too, it's such a wonderful error to make to institute prima nocta in the office and then have people fill you in on what it actually means. It's just <laughs> such a bold and hilarious mistake. I love too the part when Michael's saying, uh, I'm sorry, I've had a very different understanding as to what Prima Nocta <laughs> Two things. I'm very curious what his understanding was. Like, right. 
was he going for? But also Dwight's face watching him. Dwight looks so serious and speechless. And it's just really funny to watch him observing this. So then uh, we get Michael walking in um, and saying, what's up, spinsters? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And this, I mean, I guess it was maybe implicit in the Dwight michael stuff at the beginning but this episode has a lot of like i don't want to call it gay panic but like gay jokes yeah Um, which is kind of interesting that as far as i recall oscar doesn't really play a big role in this does he i don't think he's even here because elizabeth like is he out today because when elizabeth comes up to answer phones dwight puts her in oscar's at oscar's desk and I don't remember, I thought of that then later in the episode. And, and so I didn't, I didn't think to go back and look and see if he had been there earlier, but yeah, he's definitely not having a role. Yeah. I was wondering if he, if they shot this before, like it maybe, you know, cause sometimes they'll shoot. Oh, they do out of order. Yeah. Of order. So I wondered if this is like before he's back, but. Um, yeah. That's a good point. That might be. But Michael, it like kind of stumbles into a gay joke sort of um about uh a guy's night out but it's from 230 to 315 yeah so but trying to come up he's trying to describe it and it's it's kind of interesting because the way he's taking something that is supposed to be for women and trying to figure out how to translate it and yeah. it just keeps translating into gay stuff, basically, or like gay sounding things. So Angela tells him, you know, this is a lunch and shower, girls only. So that idea, what they're doing is a shower. He wants to create this parallel thing, but Angela's telling him that this is a girl's thing. So then he says, no problem. The guys are having a little shindig of their own in the warehouse from 2.30 to 3.15. It's the only time that Bob was available. First of all, that comes up a couple times. Hilarious and amazing move on Bob's part that he only cycled this one 45-minute window. Um, Totally. Not even an hour. Not even an hour. Sort of a guy's night out. A G-N-O, if you will. A G-N-O. Actually, it's more of a guy's afternoon in. A gay. Or a a G, sorry, a G-A-I. A gay. Not, not, it's uh, not gay. It's just, it's a bridal shower for guys. A guy shower, an hour long shower with guys. <laughs> it's just so funny to listen to him, like keep trying to make it better and it just keeps staying the same. Now I have a quick question. I have never, I'm trying to think if I've ever gone to a bridal shower. I don't know that I have. Um, so I'm curious if you've gone uh, mm-hmm. or if you had one or whatever but as far as i understand a bridal shower is distinct from like a bachelor and a bachelorette party right yes because it seems that what michael is doing is a bachelor party or maybe it didn't he didn't intend it to be that way and then it becomes that but yeah. is there any equivalent in the normative heterosexual world of marriage is there like a boys version of a bridal shower or no wow that's a great question no there's not and i think probably partly because 
a big part of the tradition of it is to shower the bride with gifts. Uh-oh. And I guess the gifts are for the woman in some way. I mean, not that people actually give gifts in this way, but if the gifts that you get for your wedding are often household things like dishes and pots and pans and a vacuum and things like that there was no reason for this to be for men oh because they're like women they're things for taking care of the household and not that that's actually the gift not that people are actually limited in that way in their gift giving now or that they're not you know have bride and groom often at these things or groom and groom i think you got to do one for somebody in that um but that's really i had never thought about the fact why is it that it's just a women's thing like there is no parallel there's no afternoon lunch parallel for michael something i'm confused about also is okay so the wedding you give a gift what gift are you giving is it different than what you give at a bridal shower yeah like how are the gifts distinguished uh you just give two gifts god damn what a scam (laughs) i also think by the way i feel that the at least like from the weddings that i've participated in as like an officiant or uh you know i guess i've been a groomsman i've been a bridesmaid i've been a anyway i've been in a few different weddings and a few different roles but either way the um, people give you a gift, like as being in the bridal party or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, and I always am like, no, you don't need to do this. Like you've given us this whole event, like free food and booze is very expensive. <laughs> like, I don't know. It, it's just the idea of gift giving is so weird to me and like the idea that you're supposed to give a gift and then get a gift in turn this brings us back to the christmas party episode and the uh what is it called nasty christmas or yeah yankee uh, swap yankee swap brings us back to stanley's toaster that he bought for yes yeah (laughs) and Um, could not return because it had been too long and so we know that now stanley has two toasters because of the traditions of wedding gift giving it's just weird how there's like at a certain there's this whirlpool of pressure with yes. a wedding for everybody. Like yes. and not just it's not just on guests and it's not just on the hosts. I just interesting. Yeah. So there is a whirlwind of pressure on everybody. And I don't know, Michael, say Michael gets another version of this pressure that comes in once Packer arrives. Yup. You want to talk because about I feel like- I feel like he was going to do something more parallel, maybe gender unconventional, because he was going to do something more parallel to what the women were doing and have lunch, celebrate Bob. But Packer really, Packer really turns it into a different thing. Um, So Packer, Todd Packer walks in, says, Halpert, tall, queer, handsome as ever. Hey, everybody, it's me, Jim. Hello, hello. Um, and that's when then he notices Karen. And so he introduces himself, Todd Packer. Karen says, Karen Filippelli, Jim's girlfriend. Packer, shut up. Karen, yep. Packer, shut it. Karen, that's rude. Packer, either this chick is a dude or Halpert got scared straight. 
So this is his entrance. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he's gross. This, his interaction with Michael. It's, well, I didn't fully understand what they were pantomiming. Did you? It's that Michael's like having a heart attack and Packer's kicking. Oh, once he goes and starts pretending to kick him. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering, did he pretend that he shot Michael and then he's going kicking him while he's down? I, I don't know. It was it was strange. Packer really comes in as quite a storm of mocking Jim, pretending to physically attack Michael. There's there's a lot of a lot of uh, I don't know, some kind of energy coming off of Packer. Can I just say uh, we've done. I don't know how how many mm-hmm. um, episodes of this podcast, and I have tried for a long time to avoid getting too specific about my family, but I'm reaching a place in my life where I no longer give a fuck about certain things, um, and I don't think anybody listens to this anyway, but nonetheless. Tyler, are you about to disclose that there's a packer in your family? Yes, uh, like my dad and my brother are exactly like Todd Packer, and <gasps> Like the things that he says and does are very like like spot on. The whole queer joke, you know, tall, queer, handsome as ever, you know, and the this chick is a dude or helper got scared. That that particular kind of homophobia and and jokey bullying, yeah, jokey them to a T. But then also uh, the kind of like. I'm going to greet you, but like, it's going to be this weird pretend violence or something that might, anyway, this show has, often it reminds me of like, it gets toxic masculinity really well, I think. And um, so it's really lovely to see Karen just be like, that's rude. Like Jim doesn't really do anything, but Karen is like, my, my respect for Karen grows and grows. Mm. Um, because she just stands up to him in a way that everybody else just lets Packer do his bullshit. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's just so, you know, even upon meeting his girlfriend, Packer must diminish, like, her. So he makes a trans joke, right? And then says, um, uh, or that that Jim is, like, scared straight. So still sort of like kind of effeminizing him or what, I don't know. It's just, yeah. he's so gross. He is gross, but he's def- it's definitely a, a way of being in the world. Yes. I, I'll say for Jim, one thing I actually kind of liked Jim's non-reaction. Yeah. Is because like Packer's unwinnable. And I think the thing, I think the thing that I liked about it is that he just, he doesn't really care. So Jim doesn't get defensive. You're right. And he just kind of lets it roll off of him. So, sort of like all the things that uh, Andy says to Michael and Michael just like lets it lets it roll off him. And that's true. Jim did the same. That's a really good point. And I, I agree with you about that. And this it's a good strategy on Jim's part. But I also love your point that Packer is unwinnable. Hmm. I think that that's really true. And it's something that's hard to remember sometimes with folks like that Mm -hmm. because it seems like you i don't know you want to stop what's happening but you can't so that strategy might be the best strategy yeah 
that's a big thing where Michael is so different than him as much as Todd it, Todd Packer is like aspirational for him in some ways and he thinks Packer is so cool Michael is really different because he does want to learn things and he wants to get better but let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about his conversation with Michael then in the office yeah so they're sitting in the office. Michael's talking about the plan. He says it's the only time he can do it. 2.30 to 3.15. I love it that that comes up again. It's going to be great. We're going to be doing some darts. We're going to be grilling some steaks. Got some pie. Going to be very delicious. And the thing I noticed here is the way that Michael, as he's trying to entice Packer and say it's going to be really cool, it's about the game. It's about the steaks. It's about the pie the deliciousness and when Packer is sitting there leaning in like waiting for him to say yeah. what is the real thing at the heart of this and Michael doesn't even know that that's the thing to make it seem delicious to Packer is not to add that there will be pie right so so Packer asks and what kind of stripper did you get and what kind so it's not even a question did you get a stripper it's just what kind yeah what kind which I like how would one answer that you know, like <laughs> yeah, what are the categories? Yeah, I don't know. Or, I actually don't know. We learned from Jim that there are more categories. Yeah. Early America, SpongeBob. SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, but Michael, so the other thing here, there are a lot of men in the office who have not seen a stripper before. I found that very interesting. Very interesting. So um packer asks michael you didn't even order you didn't order a stripper have you ever been to a bachelor party and michael's kind of like yeah, mm, not personally no oh poor guy he wants to say he's been but he's embarrassed so he has to say no and then packer mike okay a stripper is bachelor party 101 if you don't get a stripper your party is going to suck hard and then michael says i can't get a stripper here sexual harassment yeah packer just get one for the girls too. That evens it out, you know, separate but equal. Michael, so that's what that means. <laughs> that is one of the best jokes, I think. This it whole episode. It's so funny. So, so funny. <laughs> Just um, that, like, that's what he thinks. Separate but equal. <laughs> that's what he thinks. And that being one of those terms that gets away, that you hear, but then it gets away from its context and michael thinking it being something that is like oh yeah this means we really can make things equal for men and women in the office but for our context it comes from the plessy versus ferguson supreme court ruling which claims it's a justification for segregation and says that no it's not in violation of the 14th Amendment that guarantees equal protection under the law. It's not a violation of that to separate people in train cars because it's separate but equal. So it's just so funny the way he takes something that is famous as a justification, you know, like as a both yeah. justification for segregation in order to think that this is going to make things better for men and women in the office. Oh, Michael. <laughs> Well, okay, quick question. You said um, before we started recording that this episode had a lot of cringe for you. 
Mm-hmm. We haven't yet gotten to it, but I'm wondering, is this one of those scenes that has it? When does the cringe begin? Mostly Ben Franklin. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. He can handle, I mean, Packer is so brutal, but also I can handle him and I, I think it's funny. And I think that this is a really hilarious joke. I just, I, I mean, he's awful. <laughs> But it doesn't make me, it doesn't make me struggle to watch it. The stripping scene is unbearable for me. (laughs) It is is so profoundly cringy. And I, I, on rewatch, I was like, oh God, do I have to watch this? Like again, like, oh, it's so painful, but we'll get there. Um, Yeah, I guess the only thing I have to say about the scene is that it was interesting that Packer says I have a full day of sales calls. Michael says you should get out of them. Theoretically, Michael's the person who could get him out of them, right? Or something. I'm just very confused about who is Packer's like supervisor and what is Packer's kind of job. But for the purposes of the episode, it's interesting that Packer does not go because it would yeah. just, he can't go. Because if he was there, he would be the center of attention and he would yeah. he would actually like kind of suck up all the cringe that, arises without so so it's interesting he's not there but then also that michael says to him it's going to be good it's going to be a great bachelor party which is not what he said earlier a guy shower um yeah yeah so he or he is trying again to like fit in and um and does Packer say, he says, have you ever been to a bachelor party? Not personally, no. Yeah. Which, oh my fucking God. That took me back to like high school or whatever when people be like, well, have you done this? And it's like, no. Not but like, personally, no. <laughs> I've seen it on TV or like my friend, yeah. you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what, but yeah. anyway. Um, so yeah. Then Michael decides there's going to be two parties. Um and Angela says under no circumstance should a man strip off his clothes in this office to which Meredith screams shut up Angela <laughs> with great force um yeah should we continue with this thread and then circle back to uh Jim Pan Karen um yeah yeah so the selection shall we talk about the selection yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is great writing, by the way, I think. It's so funny. I noticed it, it's Mindy Kaling who wrote this one. Yeah, um, it's great. When Michael Michael assigns Jim to order the stripper, Jim says tells him no, and then Dwight immediately claims the job. He's like, I will do it. <laughs> um, one thing I thought was interesting is when, so Dwight's on the phone, he's describing his preferences ruddy cheeks thick calves no tats no moles no tats no tats of course i want and jim says stop that's disgusting and dwight tells him leave me alone and get the male stripper <laughs> <laughs> when the question on the phone to dwight then is about what color hair to have dwight says no preference and then asks jim what do you think redhead or brunette Jim says he has that moment, that pausing on his face, and then he says blonde. And Dwight says, nice. Do you have any blonde women? The so, that, oh, go ahead. You go. You yeah, go. No, no, go ahead. Just that, I mean, like, I know I'm just belaboring the obvious, but like, 
Dwight says nice because Angela's blonde and yeah. uh, Jim avoids the choice because uh, Karen's brunette and Pam is redhead. Kind of a mystery. Like, I don't think of her as a redhead, but I guess her hair is kind of reddish. Okay. It's not because she's not like a, a bright red. She's not. It's just not a color I would have typically referred to. So this is the first episode when I was like, oh, is Pam a redhead? Um, yeah, I was wondering because I'm colorblind. So I was like, I got to ask Megan, but. No, it's also not. It's not super noticeable. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd say it's more. She's got more of, I don't know, like an in-between color hair. But you said it's belaboring the obvious, but I, I do think it is actually really interesting the way that bringing like what is it that bringing a stripper into the office does or even thinking about the possibility because like you're saying it makes Kim it's there's this weighing out on the one hand the the stripper has nothing to do with Karen and Pam but immediately it has everything to do with the women who are in the office so the fact that it so quickly becomes this thing of comparison and you know how what you pick means something about what kind of women you like and that reflects on the women who are there so it just seems like actually placing this order at this phone call just immediately kind of sets a lot of things off yeah no I love that point um I have all well I don't know we'll get to it in the stripper scene because I'm always sort of fascinated by stripping spaces Mm-hmm. as like anyway so we'll come back to that but i think you're on this you're you're opening up something i had not thought of at all which is like yeah that like expressing a preference here is not just like about the whatever the fantasy of this person who's going to take off their clothes for you but yeah like has broader implications and for jim it is interesting that he does not categorically say brunette Mm-hmm. because that would be one way i suppose of like uh underscoring his attraction to um karen over yeah. pam or something like that even though th- that whatever it's not as if hair color is the defining feature of sexual orientation although <laughs> might be like yeah. i was i do think that this is always interesting you know my students i'm always talking to them you know they're like kind of people are straight people are gay people are queer people are not whatever and I'm like, okay, like, is that, is, is identity or is sort of sexuality ultimately just identity based? And is that the most definitive feature of your actual erotic desires? And they're mm-hmm. like, you know, and I'm like, okay, but like, once you start talking about like, okay, well, do you prefer to have sex with the lights on or the lights off? Do you prefer talking or is talking the absolute worst thing you could imagine? Like, do you want, you know, uh like in public do you want it you know only in missionary you know after 9 p.m do you want the you know whatever whatever like suddenly straight starts to lose a lot of its solidity when you add in any other factor and other factors might be pretty compelling and so so i don't mean to suggest that like hair color couldn't be but anyway it's just sort of interesting how hair color indexes like particular kinds of women Sometimes Mm -hmm. we have all these ideas about blonde jokes and gingers. um, And in this case, it's reducing down to single individuals. But for Dwight, his attraction is to hearty, 
women who, and I was sort of like, no moles. That's interesting, but I guess it's this unblemished skin. But I was, of course, as a person with a lot of tattoos, fixated on the no tats. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just curious if you had thoughts on that or, or, or yeah, any, any idea why, or what, if that struck you as amusing? Yeah. What did you make of that? Hmm. Yeah, I think Dwight wants, it's like a traditional farm woman or something. Even with tattoos, there's also something more urban about them and edgy. Hmm. Doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like it goes with the the rubbing cheeks and what is it? Thick calves, strong calves, something like that. Um, I wonder too how much the question of hair color ends up also kind of standing in to some extent for race being a thing where like you're not you can't ask or it's more seems more socially wrong to ask what race dancer do you want but to ask what hair color does have implications for that but it's totally socially acceptable to be like I like blondes I like brunettes you're right and it makes me think about when Kelly says later because this is the same comparison issue when she says to Ryan and people who were in the break room I think I didn't even think the stripper was that hot was she something like that where the undercutting her is not really about the stripper herself but is the question of what is what does Ryan and what does other people's potential attraction to her say about Kelly? Right. So there's a kind of self protectiveness in that. Like on the one hand, it maybe sounds like it's mean or something, you know, it's women being mean to women, but I can see the way there's something defensive in a way that's sympathetic and that's self protective. Yeah. Yeah. This idea too, of like, Okay, well, so Kelly says, I didn't think she was that hot, right? And then the um, dancer says to Pam, you could be a stripper, right? Or or you could strip. Yeah. This idea of like who can and cannot, who does and does not qualify as like hot enough. Yeah, yeah. Inhabit the position of an exotic dancer or a stripper or whatever is uh, kind of interesting, right? Because it's like as if that would be the pinnacle of hotness or something. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't have a point here, but your, your, your point about race is so smart and, and really interesting um, just in light of how that conversation unfolds. Yeah. Also the tattoos thing, I would say um, really marks this episode. I don't know. It feels like everybody has tattoos now. Um, which is strange to me because I remember when nobody did (laughs) it was only you know whatever so it's just kind of intriguing I don't know if if that would that joke would still be I mean the joke there is tats versus tip that's hilarious but um anyway that's I hadn't thought about that in fact it was that was a different time in terms of tattoos and a big reason for not getting tattoos was about having a job and being professional. Yes. There's also something about being a worker and being able to be a worker. Also, Dwight loves short sleeve shirts. You're <laughs> so, right. As far as a worker, you know, you can't have, you can't hide your tattoo sleeves underneath your material sleeves if you want to wear that style shirt. That's brilliant. That's such a brilliant point. <laughs> 
Um, let's see. Should we? Oh gosh, wait. Okay, so I just have to go. <laughs> there's so many. There's so many little things here. When it cuts then from that conversation when Dwight is on the phone and he's requesting what kind of woman he wants. And then it goes to Michael and Ryan at the sex shop. And Michael is just laughing, looking around, silently laughing. And Ryan says, he hasn't even said a word yet. Just, being <laughs> <laughs> just Michael in there. <laughs> I got nothing to say about it, but that it's... It made me... Like, yeah, the, the uh, Steve Carell performance there is fabulous okay so it's in the sex store jim calls and offers albert einstein ben franklin and spongebob square pants uh and i love the way that michael says square pants <laughs> like he's never heard of this figure before but um jim says michael referred me to a male strip club strip club called banana slings which i just think is so funny and great uh as a name for a strip club a male strip club <clears throat> instead i called the scholastic speakers of pennsylvania which <laughs> i was like spongebob square pants within the scholastic speakers but maybe spongebob comes and talks about math or something um <laughs> but i was curious to ask is this a good gym prank or is this denying the ladies you know the uh whatever the banana sling you know or they like, i think this is a good gym prank yeah i think this is i and i do not always like jim's pranks i often dislike them i think this one's really funny it's it's great would you have picked ben franklin from the three i might have been albert einstein myself i don't know it's a tough question but i would not have picked spongebob squarepants I mean, I was going to say it'd be amazing to see SpongeBob strip, but then I remembered that's not what SpongeBob would be. Really <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. The idea here, uh, maybe we get into this a little bit now. The idea is so funny. I think I think Ben Franklin is an outstanding choice, but the idea of kind of eroticizing early America is so funny. And it's so odd, but I was sort of starting to wonder why does it sound so absurd? Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, sh should it be that absurd? <laughs> but it is. But I will say, Ben Franklin is a perfect choice for this. Pam points out that he had a lot of girlfriends and she asks, didn't you have a lot of girlfriends in Paris? At some point asks, didn't Ben Franklin have syphilis? So I was reading a little article called Ben Franklin's Battery of Lovers. Oh, my God. We I have Ben Franklin ahead of his time. From oh, cod yes. to cod pieces. Oh, uh, oh I think you might have. Sex. I'm so excited that we were both like, let's find out how dirty bird uh, Ben Franklin yes. is. Down. So what would yes. you learn? OK, so mine is pretty brief, but I will quote from this article says, with his many women admirers, he preferred flirting rather than making serious commitments, and he retreated into playful detachment at any sign of danger. But ben Fra Benjamin Franklin still had his scandalous moments in life. He was a world-famous celebrity, a babe magnet, and idolized as a rock star of his day. Adorned by women in both England and France, his many affairs of the heart, mind, and body were far from boring. And then it kind of goes into some of the significant women in his life. 
But I think this connects to your point about Elizabeth saying to Pam, you could strip, you know, like who counts as sexy and who fits the profile of who should be able to strip. And today we don't really think of Ben Frank. We don't really look at those paintings of Ben Franklin and be like, ooh, hot. But Ben Franklin was a total hottie in his day. He was traveling around. The women in in France apparently loved to have him kiss their necks. You could get it, you know? Apparently. What did you learn, Tyler? Your source, tell me the title again. Your source sounded more legit than mine. Uh, Well, I had a couple different ones. The one that I'm just looking at now is from Notches. And Notches is uh, Remarks on the History of Sexuality. It's a collaborative and international history of sexuality blog. Hmm. Um, So kind of cool. And um, this article was called From Cod to Cod Pieces, Benjamin Hmm. Franklin's Guide to Food and Sex, uh, which was kind of interesting. But it said Franklin was also a well-known womanizer, openly admitted to intrigues with low women, fathered at least one illegitimate son, and wrote a cheeky piece uh, called Advice to a Young Man on the Choice of a Mistress. Um, But uh, go then with Michael giving advice to his son about bra removal. (sighs) Proceed. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's interesting. Um, So they make a big deal about his relationship between food and sex. So they hmm. say he was not simply advocating for an early form of sexual liberation. He sought to make bodies better instruments for secular civil society, capitalist economies, and republican governments by demonstrating that bodies need not be pure, but well-managed. Um, and uh, anyway, maybe we can post this link uh, somewhere. People can search it, but um, it kind of links his thoughts on f- frying cod and fish because he was a vegetarian um, for quite some time with his kind of uh, relationship to sexuality. Um, but the other piece that I had read was a Huffington Post um, piece called Ben Franklin ahead, ahead of His Time um, from a history professor at DePaul University. Um, and it mentions his 15 children out of wedlock um, and, you know, a lot of his his uh, similar dalliances that you mentioned. But it's hmm. kind of making the argument that he was like ahead of his time in terms of his not being ashamed by Puritan morality um, Hmm. and uh, his sort of resistance to conventional attitudes towards sex and, and uh, marriage in particular. So, so yeah, but you had said, I think at some point that you thought Ben Franklin here was a scumbag. Um, Well, Michael thinks he's a scumbag. Michael tells us he's a scumbag, but true. Yeah. So the the interactions with Ben Franklin do really make me feel gross. But I'll just say on the surface, I guess at the first level, it's really funny because Ben Franklin is from the scholastic speakers. He's so not a stripper and does not seem to fit that category. But then it's funnier at the deeper level when it's like, oh, actually, Ben Franklin is perfect for this role. Yes. And exactly like the one. He has bad boundaries, right? Whereas this the exotic dancer does not. Yeah. Uh, right. She has good boundaries. Like, I don't know. There's something interesting about that. Uh, the, the, the one who's not in, let's broadly called sex work, 
you know, is the one who's actually like a sleazebag, as Michael says. Yes, um, totally. But is it uh, whose fault is this? Uh, that's the wrong way to ask it. But I mean, Michael set, tells him to spank the ladies. Um, <laughs> so he sets up this thing and then he's talking about the kite thing. And um, Karen asks if he has a girlfriend and then Pam is asking about the girlfriend. Um, it feels like they're encouraging this, right? Like they're completely encouraging it. Yes. So w- what do you do with that? Like they're asking about his boxers and breathe. Like, what do you? Yes. <laughs> it's like, he's immediately getting sexually harassed as soon as he gets onto the elevator. And Michael asks, is he wearing a thong? Yeah. <laughs> and was thinking about what it would be like for that guy. As you slowly start to try to put together what is happening here? <laughs> you know? What is this? <laughs> but I just, oh, I don't know. He just, Gordon being the real guy, he, I don't know, in his interactions with Pam, when he winks, yeah. and I'm all for winking, I like winking as a move, but when he does it, it just makes my skin crawl. Wait a minute. You like winking? I do interesting I like it as a move <laughs> i can never ever ever anticipate your preferences you are a mystery to me because if you had asked me like okay put all you know here's a million dollars bet on whether megan likes to be winked at i would have been like never in a million years give me my money and uh well, man, I, that's incredible i think i don't know i think women are not supposed to like winking i think it's supposed to be seen as like negative and creepy but i don't know i think it can be friendly i think it can be fine i just i don't know i like a good wink i would like to wink more i don't really do it but it feels like something i'd like to cultivate in myself somebody winked at jen in front of me the other day and Mm -hmm. the profound feeling of jealousy i had was Mm -hmm. was real i was like why aren't you winking at me like what the fuck like um tell her maybe you need to do more winking yourself Oh, that's an interesting point. I should put out into the world what I want to receive. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. like a vision board. Um, (laughs) Okay. So, uh, well, my, okay. There are so many things in this episode. We don't have time, but my favorite. This this is an episode where we were texting before being like, we've got nothing to talk about. I still don't feel like I have a thesis though. I just feel like I'm like, and this was funny. And this is, Hello, this is a podcast. You don't need a thesis. Oh, good. For yourself. Um, just the fucking joke about the beef and the grill. So mm-hmm. Michael is using his Foreman grill. <laughs> and Ryan says, is this the same grill you cooked your foot, on, grilled your foot on? No. Yeah. Yes, yes, <laughs> but I got all the foot off of it. Oh, oh god, oh, man! And then um, brings in these massive steaks. You know, basically, you know, essentially steamed on the foreman grill, right? And uh, but nobody would like, as far as I could tell, like not only not have utensils that'll work. Like, there's no dressings or nothing, right? Like, there's nothing. I don't know. I was like, how good could that steak be? But um, <laughs> what's his face? Creed seemed pleased. Um, <laughs> is, so, yeah. Who picked it up with his hands? Yeah. <laughs> so, what did you make of the guy shower 
bachelor party. Guy shower. Well, I thought, yeah, the love the love the callback to the foreman grill. I think those steaks looked better than I would expect them to be coming off that foreman grill, because I think you're right. I think that's not giving you the best flavor. And isn't part of the purpose of the foreman grill, which was called the lean mean grilling machine, it's like at an angle to let the fat drain out of it. Right, right, which right. Which in opposition to how to think about actually making good steaks. Anyway. Um, Do you cook a steak? Um, Not often, but like grill a steak. I like steak. Yeah, just checking. I haven't asked um, in a really long time. Anyway, sorry. But I just, I just definitely think you're wasting it on a on a foreman grill, but they looked pretty good. But here's the thing about Elizabeth and her dance. So she comes out, she first goes and changes into her office themed outfit in the, whatever the little room is where Daryl usually sits. And she has this little boom box and she comes out and you had mentioned the setting for these things, like the stripping setting. And I think lighting is a really big problem. Like the lighting and the space makes it so awkward. It's just so big and open and there's no really good place for her to do it. But I think the biggest thing is full light. It does not, it doesn't work. No. But you have to be in full light, I'm sure, all the time when you're going if you're not at a strip club or something and you're going into people's houses, they're not set up for this. And I think I have a big issue. I feel like the full glaring light of warehouse lights or daylight in the office upstairs or whatever it is just is a big issue. I agree. It really, it kills the vibe. It kills the vibe. It makes it extremely uncomfortable. You said this was a painful scene for you. This scene is just horrific. Um, And I felt the worst for Elizabeth. And then also I feel horrible for Bob Vance. Oh my gosh. I feel awful for Michael. Yeah. Even though I shouldn't, um, because he's created this situation. But um, he kind of got, in fairness, he kind of got bullied into it. You know. And you know, then, it's possible yeah. to start down a road and then realize you're really uncomfortable with it. That's true. And I was, you know, I... It, okay to say no after things have gotten started. <laughs> his, um, so the way Bob Vance is like, absolutely not. That's all you. That's all you. It's like, yeah, just really interesting because it's like, all right, he's been forced to go to this thing that he doesn't really want. For 45 then, minutes. Like, for 45 minutes and then he's added this element that he didn't definitely didn't want yeah um and it's an interesting way of distinguishing everyone from packer you know yeah. like the last time we did what was it boys and girls or whatever that episode was like yeah yeah um everybody in the warehouse was kind of like more doodly or something and so mm-hmm. Bob Vance is like, I'm not interested in this. And then even Roy is like, no, you know what? I find sexy Pam's art. And I kept being like, okay, so is this performance of disavowal genuine? Is it because it's at work? Is it because they feel awkward? Is it because the cameras are filming them? Is it because they're trying to, uh, they're afraid these women would be 
mad at them or ambivalent. I wasn't quite sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But that seems to be the case because that's what happens for Michael. Like, she's like, I bet she'd be jealous about his girlfriend, which is meant to be sexy or or enticing right and and he's like yeah she would be you would be you know what <laughs> stop mm-hmm. um, and uh the he's... way he says you're engaged i'm uh i have a girlfriend you're engaged and i'm sure you have a boyfriend in prison or something um so let's just clear out shame on you get back to work what i found so fascinating about that number one is like this idea that anybody involved in sex work broadly speaking has this like tragic life boyfriend in prison (laughs) boyfriend in prison or whatever and then the ways in which like he set this up he puts himself into it and then the shame that he feels he instantly projects right yeah yeah shame on you Uh uh-huh and but what is the nature of the shame that he's feeling i don't you gotta walk me through that i don't fully get what he's feeling I think he feels it from the beginning, actually. I think, so he's expecting this to be for Bob. He's not expecting it to be for him. And so I think when it gets put to him, there is, like, he accepts, but it seems like there's a little bit of hesitation or discomfort. It's, I enjoyed watching Ryan's face there because he just looks horrified. But one of the times I noticed this is when he's talking about how she smells and he he says you smell nice like tide detergent and he keeps asking about it do you use tide detergent so he's trying to have this totally banal conversation about washing clothes like it's so not sexy and it's so not in that zone or for that context and so I think he's just uncomfortable from the start but then it's also hard to say no or hard to stop it because then you're you know not fully being a man or something like that it's very it's awkward it's really awkward once once that's going but um yeah I think he just feels like something not right about it from there I mean if you wanted to do your queer reading there's something here you know, mm. to play with <laughs> potentially uh mm-hmm. not least of all that he's like fixated on like her clothing and its smell and so, you mm. know mm-hmm. not on the clothes coming off yeah and body yeah. beneath yes or, um but I do think he's he's uncomfortable with heterosexuality like normative hetero masculinity or something like mm. that in a way that I find cringy I think because I find it relatable or whatever like the way in which he tries to have a conversation with her about something banal I don't know it just that's the that's the cringe moment Hmm. for me and uh I think it's because he's trying to make himself comfortable yeah like part of what's sweet about it is like it is it works against the premise right so the premise of stripping i suppose is like pure uh voyeurism or whatever right like you spectate on this body before you right there is it is it is purposely and intentionally impersonal like yeah that may not be it's usually not probably how it works in reality right like people go to strip clubs there's regulars 
you know, they, they know, you know, they, they know people or whatever, you know, it's like, I'm sure there's all kinds of intimacies, but mm -hmm. like in this moment, the premise is like, you be a man getting off on this woman's body. And like, Michael is like, no, we have to be more into, like, I have to know you or something. I don't know, but maybe that's not, maybe that's not it. Cause it's just about the shirt, but it feels like he's uncomfortable with that element. Yeah. Yeah. You're not supposed to ask her questions. Right. She's not supposed to be, yeah, an interlocutor. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So what's next? Well, he then uh, goes up. He calls Jan, feels some guilt, um, and he gets some advice from Ben Franklin and from Elizabeth. Uh, yes, yes. Um, so we get three different reactions. Jan's reaction is like, I'm close to firing you. Yes, uh, I love that. I'm closer to firing you than breaking up with you. Yeah, she doesn't really care about the stripper. She cares about the throwing of this thing on comfy property, right? Yeah. Um, which is, I think, interesting. Then Ben Franklin is basically like, women um, are gentler and so keep things from them. Like the, the gentler sex. Yeah. <laughs> And, what is and you have his line what is the line how does he say that um oh he says you know michael i fathered an illegitimate son michael says really ben franklin but i kept all this from my wife deborah these things only serve to upset the women they are the gentler sex and then that's when michael says well ben franklin you're really kind of a sleazebag now is ben franklin being Ben Franklin, like, why is he still in character? <laughs> I guess he's been paid to do the job, maybe like Elizabeth for what, three hours of work or something. And he's, <laughs> he's continuing to do it. That is, that is very funny. But I think probably some of his own Maybe what's gross about it is that it feels like some of his own sleaze is coming through and taking advantage of Ben Franklin. Yeah, there's there's a weird merging of self and historical figure. That's why I kind of like the Karen and Pam conversation of like, okay, so you have the the wig and the costume and you figure, how can I put this to practical use? Mm -hmm. says his dad was born a Ben Franklin impersonator and pressured him into it. <laughs> So they are themselves are kind of wondering where is the relationship between his, how does he identify with Ben Franklin or not? Yeah. Do they, I wondered there, like, do they think he's actually an erotic entertainer? Like, do they think that he's, that, <laughs> like, do they fully get that he is not supposed to be a stripper at all? <laughs> or do they think that, you know, his father was a Ben Franklin impersonator and so he, added this sexy dimension oh that's a great no, i was wondering about that well that would help explain to me why because we cut in to him doing the cherry mm -hmm. and i was kind of like what is the context for him yeah. doing that because like he wouldn't have done that i assume unless provoked so they would provoke him to do that if they think he's an erotic whatever entertainer yeah yeah but I wasn't sure. Um, yeah, so it did feel like leading up to that, you know, they were egging him on and they were trying to get him to do more. Like they were treating it as if he was a stripper. And so he, you know, he kind of got into it. 
the joke about Dwight not being sure whether it's the real Ben Franklin or not uh, <laughs> is too zany for my taste. I was like, <laughs> he's dumb, I guess, but like not that dumb. like that's too much for me. Yeah. When I yeah, I don't know what you felt about that. I agree. I do think that's kind of dumb. The idea that he's only 99% censure. It's not. I will say though, I think if I almost wish they had cut that part out where he says he's 99% sure it's not the real one and had it be more just a kind of banter or trying to get him out on his facts. Because I, I actually, as much as I dislike this Ben Franklin guy, I thought it was really funny how much he knew the stuff. And so Dwight's questions could never throw him off. So when Dwight says, care for a piece of chocolate, he just stays right in his character. Chocolate, where did you acquire it? That is a delicacy in the Amazon, but it has not yet been imported to the United States. And then he starts asking him about, you know, who are the kings, that kind of thing. But I think especially just that chocolate thing that it has not yet been imported was very funny. So I thought there were good lines in there definitely the, the bifocals where he defeats Dwight when that Dwight asks, are you nearsighted or farsighted and he says both that's why I invented the bifocal um so I thought that that content was really funny but you're right I think it kind of kills it a little bit that Dwight really believes it it feels like they could compete in this way without him believing it where he's more trying to catch him out yeah I there's got to be a joke that like would be the same like in the same waters but like a little just slightly more logical but just as funny because it is funny when he says I, i'm you know 99 sure it's not the real ben franklin but there's got to be a way to i don't know maybe it's a it's a small thing but it it bothered me um and we've got to talk about karen pam and jim um but just to read into the record before we move away from her, Elizabeth's advice to Michael was secret secrets are no fun. Secret secrets hurt someone. Is that from something? Do we have a sense of where she got that? I think it's just a saying. Okay. A cliche. And I guess part of the thing about her advice is it's so dumb. Like I guess it's yeah. it's light, but it's also embarrassing. Um, is it rhymes? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't look make her look great. The other let me give one other Elizabeth related read into the record moment. That's when Dwight's walking her to the desk and she says, "You want me to answer phones with my clothes on?" And Dwight says, "We hired you for 3 hours of work and we're going to get it." <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And then Elizabeth says, "Oh, I love your poster to Angela." And I just thought that was so sweet, actually. It just seemed really genuine. Yes. Like her poster. She was just relating to her as a normal yes. person talking to another person. But Angela was like, thank you. Like, but you know, with her hand on her head, like it's giving her a headache to have Funny. the stripper like the same poster that she does. But I just thought that was a really sweet Elizabeth moment. Um, anything for you to point out on the Karen Pam Jim plots? I think absolutely nothing. <laughs> it's got zero notes about Karen, Pam, and Jim. I would say that I don't love. I don't love the way that um, they're cut. You know, I I just we don't get a cutaway to Karen, right? Do we? 
um, in the beginning, I'm trying to think. Um, no, she does. I guess Jim, uh, Jim and I have had a little bit of a rough patch for the past couple of weeks, but we had some really good talks. And actually now I think we're better than ever. But then that's contrasted with Jim's point of view. And I really, I don't know, it felt to me like the episode leans more into Jim's perspective, which is this kind of exhaustion um, and his kind of like, uh, I don't know. It, it, mm -hmm. I don't know. I just felt like it painted it like, oh, like Karen won't stop, you know, annoying me about this thing or whatever. But like, she has every right to be upset about this. I, I don't know. I guess part of me wants like a little window into what the nature of the conversation is. Because if he, he said, I'm still have feelings for her. And then they have conversations about it. Where do those conversations go? And like, cause basically, well, so what she says to Pam is, um, uh, we kissed, uh, you kissed, we talked it through and it's totally fine. Not a big deal. It's just a kiss. So I guess that's it. Like they've been talking about that, but like, uh, again, like I'm not really, that's not the big deal. The thing is that he said he still had feelings. So I just, anyway, I just feel like, uh, again, I don't want a whole episode about this, but I was just slightly confused by the beginning. However, the payoff of the scene between Karen and Pam is excellent. I think I love the way their solidarity has been building. Like they built by pranking um, Angela <laughs> at the uh, Christmas party. And then um, uh, I don't know, feel like there's been other moments of them kind of building their connection, but then um, here they're like kind of teasing together and they're joking. And then Pam like is confused by Karen's phrasing. She's like, you're not still interested in him. Oh yeah. Really? Oh no. I was confused by your phrasing. You should definitely go out with Jim. I mean, you're going out with Jim. I'm not going out with Jim. You're dating him, which is awesome because you guys are great together. Okay. I'm not into Jim. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't, it's not like, it's just the way that uh, the actress who plays Pam does it is so great. And mm -hmm. I definitely feel like I've been in a situation where I said the opposite of what, like I've been in a situation where I misunderstood the phrasing and mm -hmm. then it's like, wait, what, you know, but like nothing with this high stakes probably. And anyway, that's all I got. And it seems too like one of those slips where it, it both has to do with not quite catching the phrasing, but it's also like the truth comes out. Yeah. Right. Right. Ah, uh, Pam. She's oh, struggling. I think uh, Karen could do so much better. I'm just saying. We'll see if she does. Should we head to Chili's? Let's go, Tyler. Chili's two in the Chicago O'Hare Airport. No, we want a full freestanding Chili's. All right, let's do it. And I, I'm going to order the chicken crispers. Thank you. Thank you. I wish they still had the original recipe. I got to tell you, the batter is wrong now. It is wrong. You know what? I did a little research and it looks like they have a different kind that's called something like original chicken crispers or it's something that's different than just ordering chicken crispers. So I have been thinking that I actually need to go to Chili's and order that to see if it is indeed the original. I can't remember its exact name, but I'm hoping that there is something because they were so good. And the oh. ones 
that I had more recently, the normal ones now that are called their chicken crispers are just absolutely not the same. And they're more they're like nice. standard boring chicken fingers. Yes. So we'll come back to that. But Tyler, who would you like to give your Dundee to today? I know that we're going to have the same Dundee. Uh, I, I know that we will, right? I don't know. We? Um, okay. Well, uh, my Dundee, I'm trying to think, do I have two this week? Um, no, I just have one and it's a clear winner. Um, and it is for Elizabeth, uh, for the, the truth telling award. Um, uh, I appreciated her kindness to Michael and, um, even her putting up with the horrific ways that they treat her from, <laughs> uh, being like, is she hot? Uh, I can't, oh, sorta or whatever. Yeah, kind of. Oh. Yeah, kind of. And then you know him stopping the dance and then making him work and still giving lovely, you know, a lovely moment. Uh, anyway, yeah. so here's to you, Elizabeth. That's that's a good one. She seems like a very nice person. I like Elizabeth in this. However, my oh. dem- gasp, gasp. I am giving the non-flirtatious flirtation award to Pam Beasley. What? <laughs> I really thought, as much as Ben Franklin grossed me out, I really liked the way that Pam interacted with him, the way that she, her statements that were like, didn't you have girlfriends? Didn't you have a lot of girlfriends in Paris? And then when he tries to act her, ask her out, and he's so gross, and he says, you know, I invented electricity. Well, I'm sensing a little electricity right here. I love how her reaction is, didn't Ben Franklin have syphilis? Um, so she kind of sticks with his character thing there. But I just felt like in the conference room when he was there performing, I felt like Pam was a lot of fun. I love that. I mean, I would also give her a shout out for the scene with Jim by the vending machine um, to mm-hmm. think that she's yes. kind and funny and yeah. kind of flirty in a way. Um, it was... Know. I thought seeing when, so she says she's um, at the vending machine and Kelly says something like, oh, you know, who was flirting with Ben Franklin, Pam. And Pam says something like, oh, you know, I really need a boyfriend, Brian, you can set me up with one of your business school friends or something. And then Jim just kind of freezes and we see Jim not being happy with that. So it just kind of ties back to Dwight's original call and the redhead brunette question and the way that it kind of sets off bringing the strippers into the office sets off these comparisons and worries and insecurities of different characters in the office and it seems like it turns out that jim was actually the only one who kind of needed to have insecurity about this day (laughs) (laughs) he thought he was perfectly resolving things but turned out to be more complicated. Um, oh, that's really interesting. The one, oh, I'll save it for our revisions and regrets. I just thought of something. But you're already regretting. Yeah, I'm gonna write these write it down, down Tyler. in my notebook. I actually have two yeah. things to mention next time. So, okay. Because um, I always show up empty handed. For the listeners, Megan brings so much. She makes this thing run. And I regret so many things. And so, yeah, you need to bring us something. So write it down. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Okay. Um, all right. Well, so well, our thank next. You for listening, everybody. Uh, what's our next uh, episode? Phyllis's wedding. Oh, <gasps> really? Already? Yeah. 
already. I know it really sneaks up on you. Oh my God. This is going to be an incredible extension of our conversation about weddings. It is. It is. All right. I look forward to that. Well, yes. Thanks everybody for listening. Bye. Bye.